Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. This is the podcast of the Weekly Standard Magazine. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, which I think would be a, a good life choice. It's March 23rd, 2018, and joining me is the founder of the Weekly Standard and a familiar voice on this podcast, Bill Crystal. Happy Friday, Bill. And to you, Charlie. Now, we, we have to note that we're recording this around 1130 Eastern time, and it's a Friday, so... In the era of Trump, things may have changed a bit by the time you listen to it. Uh, last night, Congress passed that $1.3 trillion omnibus bill. And even though President Trump had promised to sign it, he tweeted a little while ago a veto threat. Probably when he figured out he'd been rolled on a number of things, including the wall. Um, but interestingly enough, that may be only the third or fourth biggest story of the day. The stock market crashed yesterday, partly on fears of a new trade war. One of Trump's top lawyers in the Mueller probe um, either quit or was fired. And then, of course, we had the abrupt announcement that H.R. McMaster was out as national security advisor, replaced by John Bolton. Now, Bill, this is what you tweeted earlier today. In the last 10 days, Trump has fired Tillerson and McMaster. He's also attacked Mueller, hired DeGeneva and dumped Dowd. Those who've taken some comfort in a relatively stable foreign policy team and or in a legal team that would resist firing Mueller may need to reconsider. So what is going on in your view? I mean, you're absolutely right. We're talking at about, what, 1130 Eastern time. And by, you know, by the time someone listens to this late in the afternoon, it could be two more firings, a market up or down 500 points, a trade war or not a trade war, a veto of a bill that he... Uh, had supported. This is the entire appropriations for the federal government, basically, for the rest of this year. Uh, not a bill the conservatives are terribly happy with, but Trump had supported it. I think Paul Ryan went to the White House Thursday to make sure he had, or Wednesday, to make sure he had the support. Mitch McConnell called in. They put out a statement. They got Republicans in line. Uh, actually, had more Democratic support than Republicans, but they got enough Republicans in line to pass it through both houses. And then Trump this morning, I think, and I was looking at this, I think reacting to criticism of the bill from some conservatives, some Trump supporters, because there wasn't uh, enough money for the wall and because the Democrats had won on a bunch of issues, actually. Uh, Pete Hegseth on Fox and Friends, the key source of apparently much of Donald Trump's information and guidance for his presidency, had said, this is a terrible bill. It's the swamp. It's Mitch McConnell. I assume Trump watched that this morning, and Trump promptly tweets a semi-veto threat, I guess you'd say. It's hard to believe he's going to carry through with it. It would be so, I mean, it would it would be very disruptive in all kinds of ways. The government would shut down at midnight. Um, now, it's a weekend, so I guess, you know, we can survive that. But uh, Congress is gone for two weeks. They could reassemble, I suppose, but uh, which might be amusing. I mean, Donald Trump might enjoy the spectacle of all these guys uh, having to come back. Some of them are on, would love that. Some yeah. of them are on congressional delegations, codels to various, you know, foreign capitals and so forth, and they could have to be turned around. I mean, he might love that gesture of sort of sticking it to Congress. On the other hand, I do think maybe finally people like Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan would get a little exasperated and say we can't do business this way, though I suppose they can say that all they want. But if Trump wants to do business this way, he's the president. It's hard to stop them. I do think this is probably something that it probably won't – he won't veto it. It'll probably be forgotten in a day or two. But it is indicative, don't you think, of, of sort of – I mean, here we are a year into the presidency. People have said over and over, you know, he'll learn how it works yeah. and he's not going to – and suddenly, if you're now a Republican legislator, you realize he's capable of doing anything. And that gets back to the Mueller point I was making. All these assurances that don't worry, he's not going to fire Mueller. Really? Why? Is he showing a reluctance to fire people? Has he shown a reluctance to pivot on a dime? I don't, I don't think so. 
Yeah, I mean, he's, he is making these changes and he's enjoying it. Uh, by the way, uh, and, I, and I suppose you always have to connect all these dots in the era of Trump on Sunday. 60 Minutes is uh, supposedly going to be airing the Stormy Daniels interview. <clears throat> so if you're the president and you want to make sure that that is not the top story, you maybe would shut down the federal government. Who knows? See, I think the big question is uh, when, when do Diamond and Silk get jobs in the White House? When, when does Janine Pirro replace Jeff Sessions as attorney general, because I mean, we're just, we're just watching this this rolling replacement of uh, of folks in the administration. And I think your point is is valid. Anybody thinks, well, he wouldn't go that far. He wouldn't fire this person. He enjoys this. So let's talk about this. Uh, you obviously uh, know H.R. McMaster, and you you know uh, John Bolton, right. and and I, and I want to talk about <laughs> what what this represents. And 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 a couple of people have been making a distinction, and I know that you you retweeted someone who saying, look, John Bolton is not a neocon. He, in fact, is a conservative hawk. Uh, so could, could you walk me through the distinctions there, what we need to understand about John Bolton, what he is and what he is not? Yeah, and people are probably parsing this a little too fine at this point since, you know, he's not becoming president. He's becoming national security advisor to, to Donald Trump. But so John Bolton's been a friend of mine for 30 years and um, has written for the Weekly Standard many, many times. He's not quite where I am and probably most of the Weekly Standard people are on foreign policy in the sense that he's less interested in democracy promotion abroad, uh, more of a national interest first kind of guy, a little closer to Trump in that respect, but not as far over as Trump is in the America first side. So John is a sort of strong, believes in a strong foreign policy an internationalist foreign policy, to be fair, uh, strong believer in our alliances, strong believer in uh, our, our friendship with Israel and in NATO to a degree, uh, in the Japan alliance, um, but, but but a little less interested, as I say, in the, you might say, the moral side or the human rights side of foreign policy and more in the kind of let's be tough for America, let's not let international law constrain us too much uh, and so forth. Uh, it's, you know, I, I would agree with John on many things, on some things I would differ I think he's done a good job in government. He's a very able person. I mean, that's one thing where it's a little unfair, some of the mainstream coverage. It's not, he's not a Fox personality going to right. become national security advisor. He's been in government, by my count, something like 18 years in, in all the preceding Republican administrations since Reagan, including Reagan, uh, in senior positions, has uh, done a lot of important things and useful things, actually, and, and some of them not so ideological, but just kind of implementing things that his president wanted implemented. So... On the other hand, it's very different being under Secretary of State, fighting nonproliferation or whatever, where John did a good job, I think, or even UN ambassador, where you, you do work to get some uh, votes on the Security Council, and National Security Advisor. That is a huge job, a difficult job, especially difficult for this president, obviously. Um, I do think H.R. McMaster, uh, my sense is he did a terrific job under very difficult circumstances. Very impressive man, H.R. McMaster, and I, I think the country owes him a debt for what he put up with, frankly, for 13 months, but also fixing a situation when he took over with Michael Flynn and a bunch of people on the NSC and Steve Bannon. And I mean, he really inherited a slightly kooky situation. And if you think back on the last year, there have been zigs and zags and, you know, stuff that I might not have done, but basically a reasonably sober and competent execution of, of American foreign policy. McMaster deserves a lot of credit for that, I think. 
Bolton, we'll see if he's if he can do that. Um, he's a little more, he's a little closer to Trump, I'd say, in his temperament, which yeah. may be good. And, or maybe and, bad. and he's been a hawk on Russia. Well, that's going to be very interesting. He's, he wrote a review for us for the Weekly Standard mm-hmm. of Gary Kasparov's book on Russia that was very hawkish. And and you know, John is a big stand up to our enemies guy, and on Putin. Uh, Trump is not a stand-up to our enemies guy. So we'll see how much John is, will have to accommodate his boss and how much he can influence him. But the real key point, uh, and do you agree, I mean, you, you did mention you know, all this analysis of the of the foreign policy of John Bolton. It is not going to be the foreign policy of John Bolton. It's going to be the foreign policy of Donald Trump with John Bolton there. So I think the key question about any national security advisor is, is what – Trumpian instincts will he feed and which ones will he restrain? You know, will he be a restraining influence on Trump's darker, more impulsive tendencies? Obviously, Mattis and some of the other grownups in the room, uh, people like Rex Tillerson uh, and uh, and in uh, general, Mattis have been restraining influences on the president. What 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 role do you think John Bolton will play? I mean, I think that's the right question, Charlie, and it's a good way to put it. And I do think on the two big issues, there are two big issues where I think Bolton will uh, be inclined to encourage the president to be tougher or more hawkish or more threatening, if you want to put it that way, than McMaster would have or, or than Mattis would certainly. And those would be Iran and North Korea. Bolton has always been a believer that you, in regimes like that, you have to show the threat of force, maybe actually use force. Uh, very doubtful about negotiations succeeding. In either case, he was a huge critic of the Iran deal, as we all were, frankly, on our side. But uh, he's more of a get rid of the deal than try to fix the deal kind of guy. And North Korea, I think he would be more willing to be very serious about possible preemptive uh, military action. So leaving aside whether he's right or wrong on those two things, insofar as Trump's instinct is to go in that direction a little bit too, uh, I do think Bolton is will be a little more of a reinforcer of Trump and a little less of a, uh, a restrainer of Trump, I think. Okay, that makes that makes me nervous. I'll be honest. Yeah, no, I, me too. I, 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 if if John Bolton was sitting next to George W. Bush or George H. W. Bush, I wouldn't have no problem. I'll put it even but, more strongly. I mean, okay. I, I totally agree with you on this. And the, the way I put it is, I would want John. I like the idea that John yeah. Bolton was in the George H. W. Bush and the George W. Bush administrations. They had a lot of establishment people. I thought Bolton was a useful spur to rethinking some things, being a little more aggressive, being a little more challenging of the status quo. But I agree with you. With Donald Trump as president, it makes me nervous. I, 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 refer, I like John Bolton. I respect John Bolton. But I've right. got to say that John Bolton, as national security advisor, is a little nervous-making. Yeah, I mean, it, it is that combination. He, he's somebody who talks about preemptive strikes with North Korea, preemptive strikes against Iran. And again, in a different context, I, I, I you know, I would say, OK, well, the, at least what you're doing is you're doing a little saber rattling in order to get uh, some uh, so, some leverage. But with Donald Trump in the room, Donald Trump, who makes these snap decisions, um, I, I, yes, nervous making, I think, is exactly you know, the, 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 the right term here. Um, going back to what happened to H.R. McMaster, I think it's interesting. A lot of these reports would suggest that that uh, both uh, Madison Tillerson did not like H.R. McMaster, that John Kelly did not like H.R. McMaster, that there was something about him that made him uh, kind of an, of an outlier. But I kind of wonder, those folks, uh, be careful what you wish for, how well they'll be able to work with John Bolton, because I'm guessing that he's going to be a lot tougher for those guys. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Charlie. Uh, Get along. There were some tensions, I think, between McMaster and uh, 
Tillerson and, and Mattis. Um, I, I know in some issues, McMaster was actually a little more hawkish, a little more in the direction of Bolton. But I think those were more the normal tensions you'd expect. You know, in any administration, the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, they have different, they represent different institutions. They'll just have different points of view the way any of us normally would on some complicated issue. I kind of agree. I think they, I, I think McMaster's ability to manage a reasonable process, it wasn't great, but I mean, a reasonable process which produced reasonable results most of the time. I think we underestimate how much, how, how difficult that was and how much credit, honestly, McMaster deserves for doing that. I, I, the more I've talked to people who are closer than I am to what was really happening inside, the more I came to respect McMaster. I already had great respect for him, but in terms of just his actual performance as National Security Advisor, maybe he did things that rubbed some of the other people the wrong way, and who knows. But um, I wonder what John Kelly is going to... I mean, it's just very interesting. To, uh, interesting. It's 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 worrisome in a way to th- looking forward to see how, how it all works out. Maybe it'll work out fine and Bolton will become National Security Advisor and adjust and other people will adjust. But um, just just the turmoil, though, of having a new Secretary of State and a new National Security Advisor uh, appointed, announced within 10 days of each other, in the midst of a renegotiating of the Iran deal or an attempt to renegotiate it or end it, in the midst of a possible North Korea summit, just that alone, even if you're bringing in the best people in the world, you know, is tricky, right? I mean, you've got sudden, you know, un- lack of clarity yes. about who speaks for the administration. There's, in effect, no real Secretary of State now for the rest of this month until, and then Pompeo has to get confirmed. The National Security Advisor is now a lame duck for the next two or three weeks until Bolton shows up, which I think is about April 9th. Uh, even then, he's, you know, it's going to take him a little while to get, get his hands on things. He doesn't know the people, his senior advisors. Many of them are people he knows particularly well. I saw John quoted somewhere yesterday. He's not sure he's ever met Jim Mattis. I just think just even if they're all great, you know, just the first month or two is going to be complicated, them all getting to know how to work together. But this next month or two is not a time when they can take it easy because Iran and North Korea are on the front burners. Well, but the good news, of course, is that we have Jared Kushner, who's really the power behind the throne running foreign policy, right? Oh, oh wait, that's that's yeah. actually not good news, is is it? Um, yeah, I mean, you kind of wonder how long General Kelly is going to be around, because clearly he has been blindsided on a number of issues. And uh, there there is this sort of the, the, the passive aggressive management by humiliation that has become the, the, the marker of this particular White House. How can I humiliate somebody enough to encourage them to? Um, to leave. Yeah, you know, earlier this morning, um, I think it was on Morning Joe, um, Jeremy Bash used the phrase war cabinet, that uh, the president is assembling a war cabinet. And one of the one of the uh, uh, elements of that was uh, what he's doing with his legal team, that he's on war footing now um, with the with the Russia investigation with 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 Bob Mueller. And of course, uh, Steve Bannon said the same thing. And you, you referenced that Steve Bannon says that uh, Trump is going to war with Bob Mueller. So what what does the resignation or firing of, of John Dowd tell you about the trajectory of the Mueller probe and Trump's response? I mean, just the combination of his tweets attacking Mueller, um, his firing or allowing of Dowd or allowing him to resign, and the bringing in of Joe DeGeneva, uh, who certainly has expressed you know, real contempt for the FBI and for the special counsel's probe and a sense and bizarre, that it's... And bizarre conspiracy theories. Right, a sense that it's almost illegitimate, you know. Yeah. 
I mean, if he's going to be there in the White House talking with Trump, and Trump, of course, believes that himself, apparently, or either believes it or fears the probe so much that he wants people to believe that it's illegitimate. So you put all that together, it just looks like we're on a course to a real confrontation with Mueller and maybe an attempt to fire him or at least to limit the probe or to put more pressure on Rosenstein to limit the probe or or whatever. Uh, Pardons, of course, are always possible. I just think people... Certainly Republicans on the Hill, when I talk to them about this, they've been very kind of complacent in a way. We've been told by people in the White House that Trump has no intention of firing Mueller. Don't worry about yeah. it. And then you look at what's happening and you look at the last two weeks. This is where I do think, God knows we've said this a lot of times, the Trump presidency, oh, this could be an inflection point. This this could right. be different, you know, and then nothing ever really is in a way. But I don't know. I just feel like getting rid of your Secretary of State and National Security Advisor within two weeks and this change of tone and of personnel now in terms of the White House counsel's office uh, or the, the, the counsel's working on the uh, for Trump on the uh, uh, on, on the Mueller probe, that all strikes me as a pretty big moment. And I, I rather agree that it, it's a change of orientation. It, who knows if it's because he's worried that Mueller's getting too close to things or because he's just fed up or because he's, uh, you know, I mean, who knows. But, but I, I, yeah, I think it would be a mistake to assume that well, this has been kind of a rough, this has been a pretty exciting, turbulent two weeks, but now it'll probably settle down. I would say more the opposite. This has been a pretty turbulent two weeks, and it's probably just a foretaste of the turbulence to come. Yeah, and I, I, I think one of the more depressing things that we've seen, and there have been so many of these sort of soul-crushing, disillusioning moments over the last couple of years, has been watching not just the acquiescence of congressional Republicans to a lot of this behavior, but but in the House of Representatives as well, they, they've actually... you know, not not are they acquiescent, but the the House Intelligence Committee, the Devin Nunes Committee, coming out basically shutting down the Russia probe, saying there was no collusion, and and then even challenging the intelligence community's consensus that Russia had in fact interfered in in our elections. This is a really remarkable um, moment, I think. And and I guess the question I wanted to ask you was, could this be happening without Paul Ryan's active support. I mean, you're the Speaker of the House of Representatives. It's one thing to be go along with Donald Trump because you like the tax cuts or you want to repeal Obamacare. But they have become really active participants in the attempt to quash and obstruct this investigation. And where where does Ryan fit into this? I mean, it's obviously a good question. As you know, the line, I think this is true in life generally, right? You sort of acquiesce in certain things that you don't approve of maybe fully and then you kind of do a little but acquiescing implies sort of going along with and going along with sometimes then becomes facilitating and i you know and i think it's been a very blurry line and they've been led step by step down a very unfortunate path in, in my opinion and, and you do have an awful lot of republicans on the hill and uh, uh, some of them really are fervent supporters of Trump and believe strongly in him and hate the probe and hate any suggestion that there's anything was anything wrong in 2016, really. Um, it's all a set-up job, the deep state and all that. Some of them believe that. Some of them think, well, let Trump say it and I'll just kind of keep quiet. But then it turns out others go ahead, as you say, Nunes, with, with a report and, and then you're sort of on the spot. Do you agree with it or not? Well, I'm not going to comment. It's their report. You know, that's how you get down mm-hmm. to a situation. I'm struck, I mean, as you are, you've written very eloquently about this, I mean, how the how far the Republican Party has gone beyond accommodation now to real uh, enabling of mm-hmm. Trump. I wrote this little piece in the current issue 
sort of saying, look, I'm still holding out hope for the Republican Party, and, I, and I'd like to fight for the party over the next year or two. I just think well, it's irresponsible to walk away from it, and not irresponsible, but unwise to, to walk away from it. It's one of our two major parties. It's a huge institution. Uh, you'd like to at least take a shot at saving it. But I'm struck. I, I don't really look. I don't look at my comments or responses. Whatever mm-hmm. they call, what are they called on Twitter? Uh, notifications, you know. <laughs> but I am. But you can tell how many people are responding to you as opposed to retweeting you, and you know. And I'm. I think this one has generated a lot of negative comments. And I do think a lot of people, and I don't say this critically. I mean, I think a lot of serious people who thought soberly about this think I'm just being nostalgic or wishful in thinking the Republican Party can be saved. And my friend Gordon Humphrey, the former senator, Republican senator from New Hampshire, a strong Reaganite. He, he was a conservative yeah, who ran against the moderate establishment in New Hampshire. Huge supporter of Reagan's foreign policy. Very impressive guy. Uh, he he said he's left the Republican Party. And so maybe I'm kidding myself, but I guess, you know, there's no, there's no harm trying. Just we'll all see where we are by the end of 2019. But well, it, it, I was going to ask you about this because you had actually tweeted out this online petition uh, sponsored right. by a group called Republicans for the Rule of Law, and it's addressed to Donald Trump. Mr. President, firing Robert Mueller would gravely damage the presidency, the GOP in the country. Please don't do it. Now, when you sign it, and I actually did that this morning, at, at the very bottom of the petition, it has a little box saying, I am a Republican. And you checked that. I will admit I signed the petition. I didn't right. check it. And then you, you, you wrote this piece, why I am still a Republican. <laughs> and, and what you wrote is, for now, at least I'm choosing not to get with the times or to go with the times. I'm choosing not to leave the GOP. I'm choosing not to accept the Trumpification of the GOP as an irreversible fact. Um, so the, the, you know, the question is whether or not you're being a conservative realist or being somewhat nostalgic for a Republican tradition that, uh, seems to be a, at least in temporary eclipse. Yeah. Look, we'll see. I mean, I, I guess I feel honestly in terms of practical politics, I mean, people will vote for whoever they think is right this November in terms of their own congressional and Senate elections and so forth, uh, gubernatorial elections. But then in 2019, I would like to take a shot and be part of, a, you know, groups to take a shot uh, uh, at, uh, well, A, I think we should limit Trump's damage for now and see if you can uh, keep Republicans who are not so Trumpy uh, alive and well in the Congress and, and in the governor's mansions and so forth. And then B, take a shot at uh, limiting Trump to one term as the Republican nominee and and. I think that would make a big difference. I think it would be much healthier for the country if we could have a, a non-nativist, non-authoritarian-leading, non-demagogic Republican Party. If it's going to be that way, then it's going to be that way. We'll we'll fail, and and then people like me will have to think about, as you're thinking about, you know, third parties, independent candidacies, uh, are there Democrats one could support, and so forth. But so I, I kind of think, it, 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 in some ways, it doesn't, you know. Which of us says we're now Republicans or now independents at this point doesn't matter that much as a, as a practical matter. It will matter in 2020. But mm-hmm. I think for me, and I think I think this is where a lot of us in the so-called never Trump or not not for Trump world are, are, are is that we just don't can't we we're not going to support him in 2020, and, and we don't think he's been a good president. And we don't think he will be a better president in the second term. That's for sure. One interesting question for me, and one reason I have a little more hope than than a lot of people, and I may be kidding myself, but one reason I have a little more hope than a lot of people is I think there are a lot of reluctant Trump supporters who 
want to justify their vote in 2016, want to say that some good things have happened, the economy's still fine, there's no, we're not at war. You calm down, Bill and Charlie, you guys are a little too hysterical, the tweets are bad, but come on, you know, that's just talk. You've heard this a million times. Oh, yeah. Let's see where those people are in 2019 and 2020. I mean, do they really, let's assume we make it through there. Let's assume John Bolton does a good job as H.R. McMaster has. Let's assume the economy just kind of chugs along. There's no trade war. Do people really want to risk another four years? I really think there's a possibility that the re-elect, the vote for Donald Trump as a matter of re-electing him is quite different from the number of people who say, you know, I'm going to defend my decision to have voted for him in 2016, or I'll defend saying to a pollster that I approve of him. So people are being a little too fatalistic, I think, in looking at the approval numbers for Trump among Republicans and thinking that's necessarily a vote for him for a second four years. But I, as I say, I may be kidding myself. Well, you you, you touch on one of the, I think, one of the really toughest dilemmas, because you you point out in in your piece in The Standard uh, today, that it, it is a plausible argument that it would be better for the country if Democrats won control of the House in 2018. Can you actually think that and still say you're a Republican? Yeah, that's a fair question. I, I think, yes, if you think that, look, sometimes a party really needs a kick in the shins to get back on, in line and, and you can be, be for an outcome in one election, which doesn't mean that you don't generally, nine times out of ten, so to speak, prefer Republican control of Congress. But no, I am, we all are genuinely, I think, struggling with this. And I, I really wrote it in an honest way in the sense that I'm not, you know, there are individual Republicans I would like to see win. There's some really good young Republican candidates running in 2018. Can I honestly low look people in the face and say I think it's better for the country, given the way the Republicans on the Hill have behaved, given their lack of oversight of the Trump administration, their lack of being willing to constrain him, look at what they're not doing on the Mueller thing. Would I honestly be, you know, happier with a Republican control of both houses of Congress than maybe just of the Senate? I, I'm not so sure I can honestly say that. Yeah, we are in, in pain, painful times, and I'm guessing it's going to become even more painful. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for joining me uh, today. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday, and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>